Well, let's pray, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. We're working our way through the Ten Commandments slowly but surely, a little more slowly than surely, but uh, we're learning a lot. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Uh, We thank you for the verses that Rick read. We know that the word of God does not return void. It has its purposes, their divine purposes, and they have their target on our heart. That's what the word of God does. It hits our hearts, Lord. That's what we want it to. Lord, we know we have to use our minds and think and, and understand, but ultimately, Lord, it is through our heart the word of God runs and changes take place, repentance, uh, turning to you and walking with you in a greater and more glorious way. That's, that's our desire, Lord. And so as we remind ourselves of these beautiful truths that were laid down so long ago, and understand them through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that this would cause us to gravitate and move closer to you. That's what you want from your people. You want to fence us away from the things of the world that would wage war against our souls. And you are constantly drawing us to yourself. So may we heed the word of God and do that. Lord, we thank you for those that are here tonight. But we do pray for those who cannot Many are home still listening. Many have gone through procedures. Some are recovering. Some are still in treatment, Lord. Just bless them. Uh, Lord, give them strength. Heal them, Lord. And if it be your will, return them back to us here where we could fellowship with them once again. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been working our way through, well, we started in Genesis 1-1. <laughs> uh, for those who have been here with me this whole series um, in the Pentateuch, um, I hope you're enjoying it. I I sure am just studying and learning a lot. But our goal is always to see the redemptive history, the redemptive work of God, right? Starts back in Genesis and he builds this beautiful world and puts this couple in it that he created in his image. And in the end, they reject him. They believe Satan's words over God's. and, And of course, all creation, everything falls with them. And we fell with them as well. But in the midst of all of that ugliness and all the things that are going on there in in Genesis 3, God says, I will bring my seed and he will be a blessing to all nations. And so as we study the Old Testament, we have that redemptive view always when we're going through it. That's why we can handle the law rightly. We know that no man can be justified by the law, so how does a Christian handle that? We understand that God still uses principles of the law, they're, they're the reflection of his characters we've studied, to help guide us to him. Now, if you think about that, I use these words because I still got a little rancher in me. Um, God, in a sense, lays down principles in the scriptures to herd us towards him. On the other side of the fence is nothing but sin and destruction and wolves and all kinds of problems out there that make our lives very destructive. So he's always herding us towards himself with his truth. And and yet, you and I want to step across that fence. It's called transgression, trespass against God at times. But he's always trying to do that. He's bringing us to himself. He's always drawing us to himself. And when we come to Old Testament passages like the Ten Commandments where it turns more didactic versus the narrative we've been in, we begin to realize that God is teaching us. And you notice how we slowed down in this chapter because it's very didactic. God is giving his people instructions of how to have everlasting fellowship with him. 
Now, when we look at the law um, as believers, we see ourselves inside the fences. And inside the fence is believers, not unbelievers, because the law can't save you. So God doesn't lay this law down to, to save people through the law, just the opposite. He shows them the glorious character of God, and he shows you that you need a savior. Every one of us come up against the law of God and go, yeah, fail, 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 fail. I need Jesus. That's the goal of the law. But for a believer, now we look at these great commands that are wonderful for us. I mean, you, you look at this and you say, I shall not, you should not have any other gods before me. Isn't that a great command? Don't bring anything into my presence. Don't replace me with anything. Oh, that's a great command for us. And we battle that, don't we? Materialism and whatever else tries to work its way into our hearts. And he wants no rivals, does he? He wants nothing to rival his relationship with you. What's in your life that needs to move out? We've talked about that through this series. And then he comes up against the next command. He shall, you shall not make for yourself any idols or your Bible may say graven images or something in the likeness of him. And, and really what God was saying there is what would you try to portray me as? <laughs> I am a God of spirit. John 424 says God is spirit. Worship him in spirit and truth. So what would, you, what would you begin to carve out to say, well, this is God? It's ridiculous. And yet, nation after nation after nation have put idols down that they have fallen down. It still happens to this day. Um, ours are not so much carven here in the United States, but they're there, aren't they? And people bow down to them every day. And so we worked hard on trying to understand that God was a jealous God, and he wants, he wants us in that relationship to know him. Uh, we say this all the time in counseling appointments and raising our children and teaching. God is moving us to himself for his glory and for our good. When you fight against the things of God, when you know the commands and truths of scriptures, James says, if you know he who knows what to do but does not do it to him, it is what? Sin. He, he has set these down for our joy. And that's, that's why we teach these principles. Even as believers, we look at the law here and we go, this is good for me. Can anybody in the room say it's, well, I really don't need a commandment that says thou shalt not murder. <laughs> well, yeah, you need that. Because hatred, Jesus connects what? With murder, doesn't he? And so these are important truths for us to go. So let's try to get through a few today. Um, if you have your notes, uh, point number one is the third commandment for fellowship. And the more I studied these commands, the more I kept coming back to that idea that he, this great God, as we see in verse one and two, he begins to speak to these people. He wants a relationship with them, and yet he's a holy God. This is a sinful group of people. So he is designing a way for them to come into his presence by faith, obey these commands by faith, obey him, and he desires fellowship with his people. And so I kept coming back to this, and especially as a New Testament Christian, I look at the commands as things for fellowship with the Lord. We will say things like this. You'll hear comments like this. Um, I, I can't lose my salvation, but I lose the what of my salvation? The joy of my salvation. So at times, we could maybe say it this way, we step out of that close koinonia, that fellowship with the Lord. And that's what happens to us. We disobey and we feel distant from him. We, his word isn't clear to us as we read it or hear it preached because we've walked out. We tried to we push it on those fences. 
But when we say, oh God, tune my heart to do your will, we begin to hear him, the clarity of it. We have not sequestered the spirit of God, we've given him freedom. So I like this term for fellowship. So the third commandment for fellowship is verse seven. Let's look at that. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Well, this command is more than, um, than just having a foul mouth. <laughs> uh, so often I think this command just gets kind of wedged into, well, don't, don't, you know, don't use God's name or, or Jesus in an appropriate way. But certainly, and certainly that's a prevalent problem today, isn't it? I... I I don't have a lot of reference to it, but you wonder how, how much of a problem that was in this time. But you and I know how bad it is now. It's, uh, you, you, can, you have to be very careful as you watch the TV. Our Lord, our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, his name is used. Uh, um, you hear that at work. Uh, one of the things I always reminded myself, my early years of ministry, I worked full-time, drove truck, cowboy, did all kinds of things um, to aid the ministry as we're going along. And I, I remember preaching sermons on Sunday and then on the horse on Monday morning and before the sun was up, how many times I would hear the Lord's name taken in vain. You know, and I thought, Lord, never let me forget because I knew the ministry was growing and God was gonna eventually take me off the horse and bring me into the study and so forth. Never let me forget what, um, particularly then I was thinking of the men, what many of our men go through every Monday morning after church. They come out of hearing the great glorious name of Lord Jesus Christ spoken great reverence and awe and all that he's done to us. By Monday morning, they've heard him as a swear word. And it's always been a reminder to me why I pray for you men and I come visit your businesses from time to time and try to minister to you because I know how difficult it is out there. But I don't think this command is just merely about just a foul mouth. Notice the word vain there. It's sav, sav, uh, sav, kind of a V, kind of V sound on the end of it, um, is a word. And, and the Hebrew word means worthless or without results. It's an empty. It's an emptiness to it. So in other words, the third command teaches us not to lift up the glory of God in regards to worthless or empty things. And if you listen to people swear, it's the most emptiest, worthless things they do when they drag our Lord's name into that. And, and notice attached to that is this name. Do not use the name of God in a worthless or empty way. So, so when we speak of his name, we're speaking of what? We're speaking of his glory, right? Who he is, the person of God, the person of Christ, it's, it's his nature, it's his essence. It's all that he is. It's a, it's a word that sums up about who our God is. It speaks of his power. The name of God. You just say the name of God. Christ Jesus. Savior, master, creator, sustainer. I mean, you start working your way through attributes, don't you, very quickly when you come to that name. And so why, why would a Christian, let's start with us, why would a Christian ever associate those things, the, the glorious nature of God, with worthless things? Uh, we talked about this at camp with quite a few of the kids came around the table um, after speaking to them all week and they would say, how, how do I, 
break that. You know, every, every, all the kids, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. That's just constantly. And then they use the acronym in, in hashtags. And I mean, it's just, it's everywhere, right? It's just, just this vain throw around with empty words the name of God. You know, and giving them help to try to help them understand. I remember I was in the cowboy world, um, it can get you in a little bit of trouble, but I'd be saddle to saddle with somebody riding along pushing cattle and some guy would use my savior's name in vain. I said, oh, do you know him? <laughs> That's amazing because you get in a conversation right away and they quit saying it for at least a half a day or at least around you <laughs> because they don't want to talk about that. But it's a great opportunity. I use that many, many times through the years. Oh, do you know him? Who Know who? You just said Jesus Christ. Do you know who he is? He's, he's, he's my savior. Can I tell you about him? Well, no, I'm going to go over here. Or you get in a good conversation with them. So lifting up the name or the glory to pervert it or worthless things is one of the most sinful uses of the knowledge of God. If you know God and yet use his name in vain, ooh, this command says it's not without punishment. Because you're taking a knowledge of all that you know of God and then you're attaching it to something that has no value to it. You see how powerful this command is? Now listen, the pagan nations, they sought to charm their gods. And then they would act in a way to try to get them to do it. So they would use their names in vain things all the time, trying to persuade or motivate their gods to do something for them. We have great representation of that you know, in Mount Carmel, and they're cutting themselves and crying out to their gods and doing vain things, trying to awake. And, of course, the prophet's over there going, well, yell louder, maybe he's asleep. It was vain. And this is what the pagan people did. So this command is reminding Israel and us that our covenant-keeping God is not at our disposal and his glory is not to be used for vain things. You just don't call on the name of the God in some vainless way. I mean, now let's, let's go a little deeper here and let's think about our prayer life. We have those that have sat under teaching of God's word for a while, any length of us. We know God. And so is our prayer life reverent? Do we realize who we speak to or is it just, you know, we pray three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Doesn't that seem a little vain? Doesn't that seem a little weak for someone who has this great knowledge of who God is, that he's this God who spoke all things into creation. He holds all things in his hands. He knew us before the foundations of the world. He drew us to himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and to just merely pray without thinking about what you're saying. I know that's application there, but you start to think about this. We should never take our covenant-keeping God and make him at our disposal for some prayer for a meal and use his glory in a vain way. And one of the things that you'll learn to do is you'll, um, just a habit that I've got in, I said, Lord, I want to thank you for giving me this food. And you say, well, Scott, I saw you pull your money out of your wallet and bought that. Yeah, but he gave me the money to do it. He gives me all things, all good things come from Father. So you acknowledge, just acknowledge that that food comes from him. Dads, pray that way at the table. Tell, tell God in front of your children, I am grateful, God, that you gave us this food. We know it comes from you. We praise you for it. 
See, we don't want to slip into using our God's name in vain. So God is to be held in reverence. He is to be approached only in the way he is laid down, not the way man wants to come. And notice it says the Lord will not leave him unpunished. Well, that punishment is not described in the text. Notice you don't see anything about that. But it's not hard to realize that what a holy God would do to those who cheapen his glory. (laughs) I don't think he's happy with it. And again, we find in places like Revelation where the dead are raised and brought in front of him and he judges them according to their deeds that he has written down in a book. And so we need to be careful. The New Testament speaks in many ways about this, but there's some interesting passages that I just want to just give you real quick and just jot these down. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 says, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of honor so that the name of God, now listen this, so that the, the, the slave or employee might be better for us in this day and age, um, we're to honor those who we work for, those we're under, those we share work with or ministry with, as worthy so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Now notice that, so the name of God will not be spoken against. So what the Bible's telling us, Peter's, excuse me, Paul's reminding uh, Timothy as he's teaching the church in Ephesus is train your people the value of the name of God so it affects their work life so those around them will not use the name of God poorly. You see that? I love that verse. And I had not really thought about it connected here until I was studying this passage. So that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. I'll tell you, you live for the, if you live for the Lord Jesus Christ, people will be very careful how they talk about your Christ if you live in front of them that way. Ephesians chapter four, verse 29 and 30, this is just a good text, let no unwholesome word proceed from our mouth, but, such, but only such as a word is as good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear And then listen to this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What comes out of our mouth is really the outflow, Proverbs chapter hmm, 424, 423, the outflow of what's in our heart. Colossians chapter four, verse six, let your speech always be seasoned with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Well, if you've got a foul mouth and you have to respond, that just doesn't make sense to people. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. This one I, I had not seen, and I tracked this down. Now listen to this. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen our hearts, now listen to this, in every good work and word, I mean, we have lots of passages that tell us that God has prepared good works in advance for us to do, that we do good deeds to people because of the gospel. We have lots of that. But I love this text, 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. At the end, it says, strengthen your heart in every good work and every word. So the good work and word that comes out of our heart should exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's tons of passages that say, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Uh, Revelation chapter four, we see that kind of language. We see Paul speaking about God and all the things he's doing. Then all of a sudden he just breaks out in praise, honor and glory be your name and so forth. That's what should happen when we hear 
the name of God. So what a great command for us today. Um, First of all, before you try to clean other people's language up, make sure yours is. (laughs) Because you're going to have a very uh, false testimony. And before you can say to somebody, hey, do you know my God? Uh, Make sure that the things that come out of your mouth honor the Lord. Let's look at the fourth command. The fourth command for fellowship, verses 8 through 11. Remember uh, Remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. It is, in it you shall do, um, excuse me, in it you shall not do work, nor your, you or your sons or your daughters, your male or female servants, or your cattle or your sojourners who stay with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, these next two commands are, are very interesting. They're, they're the only commands framed in a, what we would call in original languages in a positive. Now, it doesn't mean the other ones, that I don't want you to think like we think in English, like, well, that's really positive what you said, or that was really negative. Uh, they're negative because they said, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Well, these two commands don't use the word not. In fact, there's kind of like an ongoing, this has already been happening, this is the way your life has been, you should continue to do these things. So in verse eight here, as we look at it, the, the point of this command is to assure that there's ongoing obligation to the structure of uh, a structured time set apart for the worship of God. An ongoing time frame where you, where you set apart and obligate yourself to be with God. Notice the phrase, keep it holy, keep it holy. It reminds us that the day was to be different from the normal human activity and, and to devote the service to the Lord. I think I may have told you this, but I used to have old cowboys that show up at church and they would pull their seat back and behind there would be a, what they thought a clean shirt. <laughs> they'd pull it out and shake it off because they'd been feeding cows all morning. And that was, they, 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 it was their way to say, God, I'm giving you my best on this day. Cows don't know it's Sunday. We always said, kids, cows don't know it's Christmas. Let's go feed, you know. (laughs) Dad, presents, you know, cows, then presents. (laughs) Um, That's just part of the life of taking care of things. And and, and yet, here it's told to keep it holy. Set this apart from normal human activity. I I hope that Sundays for you is a different day. It it doesn't mean, and I'm very clear on this, and you want to talk with me later, about it we can uh, it doesn't I don't think in any way this is for the New Testament believer this is talking about you can't mow your lawn or you can't go and do something or throw a football around or do anything like that but it is set apart it is a very special day for believers and we'll get into that a little more why we worship on the first day of the week here just in a minute notice the word Sabbath the Sabbath just the Hebrew word denotes rest it's it's particular to to resting from routines from routines isn't it interesting, we can't get our kids up on Sunday morning, but we can get them up all week long. <laughs> or you yourself, maybe you don't have any kids, and you go, why, well, I get up at, you know, oh, dark 30 every day to go to work, and I can't get up for early service. I'm so tired on Sunday. Well, your routine is different on Sunday. And, and really, when we wake up, our minds should start thinking differently. But notice the command in verse 8, it says, remember. And then it uses a verb, keeping. 
Well, certainly there was a recall from, from the past, but also contains an exhortation for the future. So what's interesting about this command is this has been something they've been doing. It isn't hard to look back at Exodus 16, verses 23 through 30, and that's where God gave them manna, right? And when you study that passage, as we did, if you can go back and listen to that if you want, that the day when God gave them that, he, what did he do? He rained manna down for how many days? On the sixth. And what did he tell them to do on the seventh? Don't collect it. Collect enough on six. They'll be there. It won't rot. won't have worms. won't have any problems. So the way we understand this command is this thing has already been going. And so instead of being in a negative charge, it's in some positive star, positive charge, keep remembering, keep doing this, set this apart just as I have set this apart long before you got here to Sinai. And, and, but many of, many of the patriarchs, they, they remembered the seventh day and they connected it to what? They connected it to creation, right? Genesis chapter two, verse three, there the Bible says that God rested from all of his work. So it seems possible as we study this um, that the seventh day had been recognized for a long time from the, for the nation of Israel and even beyond that uh, before they got to Mount Sinai. Now look at verse nine with me. It says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Now, with the knowledge of the pattern of creation of God, it gives you keys to understand verse 9. He uses terms labor and work, and they're not derogatory. These are not derogatory terms, and we must understand that. God created work. There was work before the fall. People say, oh, works, you know, because of sin. Well, oh, yeah, work changed, but there was work. Now, it was a gravy job, you know, collecting fruit and doing whatever you were doing in the garden. I want everybody to love to have that job, but, but the Bible doesn't use these terms in negative terms. So God created work even before the fall, and Adam and Eve were there. They were guardians of the garden. They were taking care of that thing that God had designed for them. And, and God himself worked. He exercised I'm breathing harder to you because I'm talking more, right? But as I breathe, my heart beats to give me oxygen so I can preach and talk to you at length and with a little bit of passion. So my heart's working. Well, anytime you labor, anytime you breathe, and for God, he spoke into existence. He, he exercised strength. He worked at what he did, and he created what we have. So God himself worked. And so work is a very important thing to God. He exercised energy. The routine, the routine, and here's what he's after, the routine of supervised employee or employer and any provision for the home was to be put at this time in, to the nation of Israel, and we have to make sure we understand that, was to be put on hold on the seventh day. Now look at verse 10 with me. But the seventh day is a, is a Sabbath of the Lord, it's a rest of the Lord your God. In it you shall do not do any work, you, your sons, your daughters, your male or female servants, your cattle, your sojourners who stay with you. Now, the Sabbath day belonged to the Lord, and it was characteristics of this day that were meant to acknowledge him. He wanted, he wanted everything to acknowledge him on that one day. And so, since animals could not work without human guidance, even they were included in the benefits of this rest. And also notice that even though those who did not profess faith in Yahweh, who were living among the Israelites, 
they were to respect this ordinance as well. And they, see, they, they like so many, and you can think about, you can put this into perspective, they enjoyed the blessing of living under the headship of God in Israel. And so under that protection of God and his people, they too were instructed to obey this. But look at verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the seas and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Well, remember, so the Sabbath predates Israel long, long before this, as we've talked about. And many Sabbatarians, if you run into a Sabbatarian, that's going to be some of your seventh day and other people, um, they'll give you, uh, I also, I, well, I use the askemist because I, where we did our ranch and where our first church was, and the seventh day are very strong in the rural areas. They, they, it's kind of a, a hot spot for them. So you run into them a lot of places. So I'd always say, well, well what, what reason do you have for keeping the Sabbath, keeping the seventh day as your holy day? Well, they would say, and they would turn to this passage, particularly verse 11, and they would say, because six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. So we keep this because God did this on the seventh day. Well, then I appropriately take them to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12, and I read them the command. Now, this is Exodus chapter 20, but in Deuteronomy, before they go into the nation, Moses rewrites these, reteaches it to him, and he says this, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall work and do all your labor, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath, the Lord your God, and it shall be, you shall not do any work, you or your sons or daughters, your male and female servants, or your ox or your donkey, or any other cattle and, your, and sojourners who stay with you, so that your male servants and your female servants may rest as well. That all sounds right in line with Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. Then God says this. You shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there by the mighty hand of God, by the outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath. So I'll ask him, do you observe because of creation or do you observe because you were brought out of Egypt? <laughs> uh, I wasn't brought out of Egypt, so I'm going with creation. Well, wait a minute, what this shows is this particular command was given to the nation of Israel. They're the ones that know the freedom of slavery from particular Egypt. Now, certainly we can make the application of our own slavery, but but. Holding one day actually is not what God ever had intended. Now listen, the new covenant solved this by communicating the universal truth that the Lord wants his people at all times in all places, all times in all places to worship him. So this is where he's moved this to. And when we got to the resurrection, that becomes this monument that displays the completion of the law. Through Christ alone. And, and, and it's a beautiful thing. Through Christ alone, we worship in the presence of God at any time and any place. And, and listen, but the law just embodied a particular amount of time and was devoted to worship. You say, well, how much time was? Well, it's one-seventh. That was the law. One-seventh. This day. But not under the new covenant. Not in the new covenant does it teach that. We are to worship him every day. In fact, the new covenant 
recognizes this climatic events of the crucifixion and the resurrection and ushers us into a whole new creation. We're new creatures. All of our life belongs to him. Every day, every moment is a worship service for us. And though we gather on the first day of the week, now, corporately, the Bible says that we enter it as a rest, and I'll get to that in a minute. So corporate worship of the church quickly turned to the first day of the week. You can't help but get around it in the New Testament. Uh, just a quick study. If you do a quick study, just the phrase, the first day of the week, first day of the week, just do a quick study. You know what you're going to see first? You're going to see Christ's appearance on the first day of the week after his resurrection. He keeps showing up on the first day of the week. And then quickly after that, it is just, I mean, right away the church begins to meet on the first day. Because what would you have if he doesn't get out of that grave? You are stuck trying to keep the law and bring yourself to God. God completed all that through the Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And we meet on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday for us in our calendar, because it is the day he said it is finished, that he stamped that approval by coming out of the grave on that first day of the week, and we celebrate together corporately. Now, this was a big problem in the early church because there were still people trying to mingle law and Jesus, right? Paul's constantly dealing with it. In almost every letter, he's dealing with it. Listen to what he says in Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17. He says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food, right? That was a huge problem. They're going, oh, you can't eat that. No bacon for you. Or drink, you can't drink that in respect to festivals or new moons. And then it says, or Sabbath day. Things, now listen to this, things which were a mere shadow of what was to come, but the substance belongs to who? Christ. So all of this law, particularly as we speak about this commandment here, the Sabbath was, was casting a shadow that led to the feet of Christ. And so he becomes everything. He's not one-seventh to us, right? He's 100% to us in each and every day. And so we no longer limit that. Now we gather because of the resurrection on the first day of the week, but all of this, festivals, new moons, Sabbath day, which were a mere, and, and, and the Greek is so sharp on this, it wants to show you there's nothing there to hold on to. If you want to hold on to these commands in their literal sense in an Old Testament law style, you'll never get to me. But if you follow the shadow to what they lead to, it comes to Christ and that's where the substance is. Now today, many Sabbatarians will tell you that this is one command that's not repeated in the New Testament. Whew, well, I beg to disagree with that. And I have many times, first of all, I've already mentioned just do a, a short study on the first day of the week passages. That's a very fun study to do. And it's exciting. You think about these thousands of believers who are getting saved, many that are Jewish early on, Right? They are, for all their life, generation after generation after generation, have been going on the Sabbath, going to the tabernacle, going to the temple, doing all of that. They immediately switch and begin to worship on, on Sunday, the first day of the week. It's extraordinary how that just happened. And yet there were those that were barking at them all the time. This Colossians 2 passage and many others deal with it. And then the whole works-based mentality that comes with a desire to keep the Sabbath. 
can't do this, can't do that. Don't dare do that. And, and, and it pushes people, it pushes in people that they are somehow have to justify themselves before God. That's not what God designed. Well, look with me at Hebrews 4, because I want to take you to where probably the most strongest passage of, I believe, this uh, command is taught. Hebrews chapter 4 with me, and I want you to get your finger on this in the text. In keeping with this great theme in Hebrews that Christ is greater, that's the theme of Hebrews, the writer here informs us of a greater Sabbath given in Christ. He's all the way through Hebrews. Christ is greater, he's greater, greater, greater prophet, greater king, greater prophet, greater king, greater priest, greater Sabbath here. Now look with me at this text. Verse, uh, chapter four, verse one. Therefore let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have not come short. So here in this first verse, he's referring back. If you just look back to chapter 3, verse 18, he's talking about these people who were disobedient. And notice in verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter into rest? Remember, the Sabbath is all about rest, but now we're talking about an eternal rest, right? That that's what, that's what our gathering is to remind us of, right? When we gather together on Sundays, it reminds us that this group is going to eternally rest in heaven together someday. So it's a great reminder of this, and the way we get there is through faith. But notice he says, to, to whom did, they, did he swear that those who would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Not to those who are obedient, right? So, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So there's an unbelief kind of tied to this works of of trying to bring yourself to God. So works and unbelief are tied together, and then faith and obedience are tied together all through this passage. Now, drop back down to chapter four, verse one. Therefore, let us fear if, while the promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, if we have good news preached to us, if we've had the good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith if, in those who heard it. So you go, well, what does that mean? Well, the, the good news, the gospel was preached. It started in Genesis chapter three. There's a seed coming. It's gonna come through woman and it's gonna crush the head of serpent. Abraham, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you. And there's a seed coming through you who is gonna be a blessing to the entire, all of the nations. All of this gospel message was preached. When you get to Acts chapter seven, when and we looked at this Sunday, when, when they're about ready to stone Peter and, and, and I mean, excuse me, uh, Stephen, and, and Stephen cries out and he says, which one of the prophets did you not kill who preached about the coming of the righteous one? So people say, well, I don't know. I, I, boy, I look at the Old Testament. How do you understand that? We have to understand this redemptive view. They, everyone, was preaching about this coming deliverer. That's what the prophets came to do. And of course, they didn't want to hear that, and they began to kill them. So this good news was preached to the nation. Now, they didn't enter the rest because they didn't believe. We can physically do this without believing. I'll tell you what. 
you can physically come to church, you can take communion, you can even be baptized, you can physically do a lot of things, but if God has not granted you faith that led to repentance, that proved itself in obedience, you'll never enter his rest. Rest comes through faith in Christ. And, and this is all tied to this great work that leads us into this, what I call our final Sabbath rest in Christ. Notice verse three. For we who have believed entered that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That comes from Psalms 95 there. Uh, it's a psalm totally written against unbelief and hard heart. Although his works were finished from the, found, from the foundations of the world, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. He's referring back to Genesis 2.2. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest, Psalms 95. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter, and those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. So their hearts were not tuned to God. They didn't obey. And then he kind of goes on and he says, don't fix, there's a, fix, there's a day fixed ahead today, saying that David also, in verse seven, a long time ago, just as it had been said before, today you will hear his voice. Do not harden your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day. So all of the things of obeying, doing everything Joshua says, doing everything Moses says will not get you there. Salvation always came by faith. And when faith comes, rest comes from your work. Notice what he'll do here, verse nine. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Well, what is that? Verse 10, here's the answer. For the one who has entered his rest, now it's a completed, past action here, right? For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works. That's the people who understand the Sabbath. God, I am here to worship you, not because I'm coming to get saved in some way by my works and my duties and all the things that I've done. I am coming here because you plunged faith into my heart and I believe your son came to earth, died for my sins, was raised from the dead and proved that, I am, that my works had nothing to do with it. And I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And so my point here as we wrap this one up is that every day is a Sabbath for a believer. Have you entered into the final rest with God? Or are you still offering sacrifices? God, I didn't swear today. Can I go to heaven? I went to church three Sundays in a row, God. Are you still trying to offer something to God to gain salvation? You have not entered into his rest and you will never rest. You will be judged the rest of your eternal existence. And so for us, we believe that every day is a rest for us. Yes, we gather on the first day of the week. Man, Jesus got out of the grave. He beat sin, Satan, and death. God approved it by raising from the dead and giving him the right hand of the Father, putting all authority under him. That's a beautiful day. What other day would we ever want to come meet to celebrate that corporately? But look, we're here on a Wednesday, which is um, one, two, the fourth day of the week. And we can come back tomorrow if you want. 
I have to go study tonight, but well, you can go back tomorrow. We, could, we can meet any time. Small groups meet without, throughout the week. Bible studies are going on. Counseling sessions are happening because the church is resting in Christ and we're finding our victory in him and we're constantly thinking about the things of him. And so we're not bound to one-seventh of our days to serve God. 100% of our days serve God. And this is the battle. This is where the battle lies, men and women here. As you leave for work in tomorrow, or whatever, maybe you're retired, and that's your job now, to be retired and serve God in your retirement. Whatever it is, remember, that's, you're working in that rest, that time of worship is that time of rest, whether it's working or not. You, your tomorrow is your service to the Lord. I remember when I finally got around, the Lord didn't let me go into ministry until I could figure out that my ministry was my job. He was not gonna let me do this till I understood that because I couldn't talk to you. So finally, as a young man, I realized this is my ministry because I kept going, God, you called me. When am, I gonna, when am I gonna start preaching? When am I gonna get to do this? When am I gonna do that? He said, you're gonna do this till you realize your ministry is on the back of that horse, driving that truck, doing whatever I have for you because today is the day, is the Lord's day. Every day is the Lord's day. And so men and women, as you get up tomorrow, remind yourself of that. Today is the Lord's day. Give him your best. Let your speech honor him. Let the light and glory of God shine through you as you work. Let people either be drawn to you through that or run away from you, because they're gonna do one or the other. And they may group up, I'd have cowboys there, oh yeah, the preacher's riding with us today. And pretty soon, some guy got working his way over because his grandma died or something happened in his life and, and he wants to talk to somebody spiritual. But I didn't cuss like a sailor and I cut the clean mouth and was always encouraging and those people will find you. Every day, every day is a Sabbath for a new covenant believer. Amen? Well, we got through two today. That's a big deal for me. Um, uh, I've been doing a half at a time, so um, we'll, we'll take this next Wednesday on to the Sixth Commandment because it, it's amazing commandment. Just take a peek at it and then we'll close. Just let me read it to you and let you think about it um, over this next week and we'll come back to it. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. This is a great command. And I promise you, we're gonna study this. We're gonna find out that this command filters into the rest of society. And we're gonna drill down and go, "Uh uh-oh, now we know why we have problems. So this is a great command to to study. We'll look at it uh, in-depthly next week. Father, thank you for our time together in the word. Thank you that you have accomplished all things and we enter into your rest. And Lord, Sunday is a special day for us. Lord, it's a day you beat sin, Satan, and death, and you got out of the grave, and God was propitiated. He was totally, fully sacrificed in your offering on our behalf. It is such a wonderful day to come together, Lord. But Lord, every day, every day we wake up as we sang tonight, Lord, at our breath, our breath is worship to you, Lord. Cause us to realize that we have entered into your rest by faith. And when you gave us faith, we repented. And when we repented, we began to obey you. And you blessed us with fruit in our lives so we knew you had changed us. And so, Lord, every day, every day that you give us life, we live in your rest. We have nothing to offer you but what you did through Jesus Christ. We bring that back to you. 
time and time again, but that affects our life, it affects our worship, it certainly affects our, our corporate worship as well as our personal everyday. So Lord, help us tomorrow as we wake up that we would be reminded as our minds begin to start to think of all the busyness, Lord, that we would say, oh Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for letting me rest from all my works that could never please you. Thank you for taking that away from me and letting Jesus Christ alone satisfy you for my behalf. Lord, help us start our day that way tomorrow. May we be lights in this uh, seemingly growing darker world. And we give you the glory for all of that. In Jesus' name, amen.